Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to tell you, as I uh, battled with fever for a couple days this week and, and felt just awful, and it rounded into pink eye and, and then a, an uh, ear infection, uh, and at I, 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 one point I asked Heather, at what point are you going to ask me to curse God? Um, but all week... Uh, I had early, early on this week done a lot of the sermon prep. And so this was all on my mind. And as I was laying there, uh, it just kept soaking the beauty of this passage. And I did. I laid in bed over and over and asked this prayer, Lord, if You could just give me strength to preach this passage on Sunday, I would so appreciate it. I love this passage. And I am praying that, that you will see the beauty of this passage in the beauty of the cross this morning come across. Um, I thank Him that, that I had the opportunity uh, to even be uh, up here uh, with you. Verse 51, And behold... Actually, I'll tell you what, let's back up and hit 45 so you remember the context. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see where, uh, whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There also were many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother and the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Jesus took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were, the, were, were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal away his body and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray together. Father, there are no words to describe the help that's needed to talk about something that's way, way beyond any mere human's understanding like the events of the cross. More than ever this week, I have been reminded, I've been awakened to the cosmic nature of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that by Your Spirit, You would use Your Word to speak to us, Your people, that we would be renewed and refreshed in our vision for how strong and awesome is our God and what He demonstrated on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we would be those people who look for a coming kingdom, who have our eyes gazing on something that is not here and now, but Lord, something that is coming and sure. I pray for it, Father. I thank You for these people who are involved. I thank You for Your control over every aspect. I thank You for the cross. In Your name we pray. Amen. Um, if there's going to be a title, I'd probably title it something as The Cross, The Seed, and The Coming Kingdom. The Cross, The Seed, and The Coming Kingdom. Our passage this morning covers the events surrounding the death of the Son of God, the execution of the perfect Lamb of God. These events trace the historical accounts of the divine judgment of sin and of God's God the Father's reckoning of His wrath upon mankind. You know, we really should treat every passage of Scripture with a lot of reverence. It is Scripture. I tell you, we should tread very cautiously when we deal with the passion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what we're dealing with is really at the nucleus of the atom of all of human history. Everything comes down to this. It's amazing when you consider that before the foundations of the earth, before it ever began, God the Father meticulously planned every detail. He was in control of every person. In these accounts, although every single one of them bear responsibility for their actions. Coming to the passage, we already know that the events of the cross were horrific. Pastor Charlie did a great job of helping us see that last week. We know that our Savior Jesus endured unbelievable agony, immense pain and suffering. He, he went through derision and shame and excessive pain. All of this was true. Every detail. And yet, remember the fact that the physical suffering that our Lord endured 
was only a shadow for us to see of the spiritual suffering that He endured. In verse 45, we're told of the darkness in the land from noon until three. The darkness stands as the picture of the darkness felt in the heart of our Lord who had never, ever experienced even the slightest degree of separation from God the Father and was now experiencing full separation. It makes complete sense that God the Father would wait until the time of day when the sun would shine the brightest normally to bring darkness. Because... The brightest soul that ever shined was the soul of Jesus Christ. The purest heart that ever beat was the heart of Jesus Christ. And there was darkness. That's the context that we come upon when Jesus says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And then we know because of the Apostle John utters one Greek word to telestai, that is, it is finished. And, and you get the sense that Matthew wants us to experience a deafening silence. At the end of verse 50, and a certain question of what just happened. What just happened? I tell you that not to be dramatic, but because I think that's what Matthew's after. Because I think verse 51 through 53, which we'll spend two thirds of our time on, are answering that question. What just happened? And it's amazing. We are going to see three ridiculous miracles. Three crazy events that happen as soon as Jesus says it's finished. Look first at verse 51. We'll look at the first one. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and how? From top to bottom. So it's torn in two, and it's intentional, it's told us from top to bottom. The top to bottom part helps us to make sure we don't in any way think that any human can pull this off. The temple curtain was something like 60 feet tall. That's six stories tall. There's no human person that can rip a curtain six feet tall from top to bottom. It's not going to happen. He wants to make sure that we know that it was ripped from top to bottom. Now exactly which curtain, well there's a question there because there's actually two curtains in the temple, right? There's the curtain that separates the um, most holy place from the holy place and then the curtain that separates the holy place from the outer court, from the other court. So, which one? Well, we actually get a lot of help here from Scripture, and in particular the Scripture we all read together, Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author tells us this. He says, Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So we have confidence now. He's interpreting what happened. He's saying because this opened up, this curtain opened up, we can now enter where? The holy place. And He means they're the most holy of holies. We can enter that because of what Christ did. And just don't forget this actually happened. I don't know a lot about fabric. I really don't. But if there's a, a very wide curtain that is 60 feet tall, that's no small deal to rip in half. Jesus says it's finished. And somebody's got to figure out that the most important piece of fabric in the land just got split in two. It really happened. <laughs> That's the mild one. That's the crazy part. That's the mild one. Keep going. <clears throat> and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. <laughs> Jesus says it's finished. And the, the, the curtain tears. And obviously, as we just talked about, an amazing sign that now there's, no, there's not this separation between God and man. Or at least the promise that, that that's coming, that there will one day be no separation between God and man. And then right at the same time, we find out the earth shakes. The actual land shakes. There's an earthquake. And just so you don't read this and think, well, maybe somebody dropped something really large and they mistook it. The rocks split. That's a massive shake. It actually takes rocks and splits them in half. And coincidentally, something else happened. What's that? Tombs opened up. <laughs> oh, this is great. The most holy place, the curtain rips, the whole earth shakes, the tombs open, the rocks pull away from the tombs. Right when Jesus says, it's finished. Just moments ago, there's all this mockery of this guy, this nobody. And he utters the words, it's finished. He gives up. His Spirit. And all of this takes place. You know, you always want to be a fly on the wall in a lot of places in history. One of the places I would like to be a fly on the wall, I don't know why we couldn't be other things. Why do we have to be flies? But anyway, um, <clears throat> I'll have to stick with the saying. I would love to be in Pilate's house. Do you remember that right when Pilate is dealing with Jesus, do you remember what his wife tells him? She says, you know, I had a really bad dream about this dude. I think you should leave him alone. Now, I've been around enough houses and marriages to know if the wife tells the husband, I really think you should act this way, do this. Husband ignores that altogether. He doesn't do what she says. He lets Jesus get crucified, right? And then there's darkness over the land for three hours. The earth shakes, they got tombs open, and the holy place has a big rip in it. 
You got to know there's one big I told you so going on in Pilate's house. <laughs> I told you, I told you, you should leave him alone. <laughs> well, we killed him. Everything's okay. Oh, oh, do you not know? All right. Well, if you think that you're in the middle of a science fiction movie now, which by the way, you need to know this about your pastor. He loves science fiction. This man loves science fiction. He's been trying to get me to love it for years. I can't enjoy it like he does, but he loves it. I, I used to laugh at my friends. I think something's wrong with my dad on Sunday nights. He comes home and he veges out on science fiction. That tells me what the pastoral work does to a man. Anyway, I'm on a lot of meds today, um, so anything that comes out, I'm not responsible for. All right, listen to this. This is unreal. In many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went in the holy city and appeared to many. Now let's just catalog what we just heard. Many bodies of the saints, that's holy ones, who were dead are raised. They come out of their tombs. They actually go into the city. And it tells us all of this happened after the resurrection. Now, before we start talking about all the details there, let's make sure we get, uh, understand what Matthew's saying. Remember, the last two miracles took place when? Right when Jesus says, it's finished. It's a little bit tough to track here with Matthew, and we're going to talk about this in a second. But Matthew's actually telling us this miracle doesn't happen until after the resurrection. So all this happens on Friday, immediately when Jesus says it's finished. But this next part, the part about the dead people coming out of the tombs doesn't happen until Sunday. I don't think we should read this as... And, and some of the translations can make it sound this way. I don't think this is what they're intending. But we shouldn't read this as... And many of the bodies of the saints were raised at the time of Christ's death and coming out of the tombs after the resurrection. That is, it just doesn't fit. And it wouldn't make sense that... God would raise them on Friday and make them just chill in their tombs until Sunday. There's no reason for that. Uh, we don't want a bunch of bored saints sitting around. That's not a good thing. So that, that's not what's happening. I believe Matthew is telling us that when Christ died on Friday, the temple curtain ripped from top to bottom. The earth shook and the tombs were opened. And on Sunday, when Christ was resurrected... Holy ones or saints were raised with them and they went into Jerusalem. Amazing. It really says it. So, what are we to make of it? Well, to be honest, we're not told a whole lot. Um, and it even gets harder than that because even though Mark and Luke also tell us about the temple being torn, Matthew's the only one of the four Gospels that tells us about the earth shaking, the tombs opening, and the saints raising up and going into the city on Sunday. So we don't have nearly as much. Unfortunately, there have been some scholars uh, who have said, well, we don't have much here, so we should just guess that Matthew made this up. And I think that's a huge, huge, big mistake. There's really something going on here. And it's really amazing. I do think that you are probably got some questions about, what, about this, and I think it's fair to hit them, uh, such as, who were these folks? Well, most commentators believe that these were actually pretty well-known Jewish saints. 
I tend to agree with that. I don't see any reason not to, and there'll be something in a second, I think, that lends support to that. Um, well, were they raised to natural bodies like Lazarus? Or were they raised to a supernatural body like Jesus? The text does not necessitate one way or the other. Uh, but I think it's probably supernatural bodies. And let me tell you why. There's a really, really important chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 37. Probably the most important chapter of that major prophet. Uh, we get at the second part of that chapter, we get the promise of the new covenant. But in there, there's something that you're probably actually pretty familiar with because we sang about it a lot as kids, right? Uh, Ezekiel called them dry bones and bones and bones going to walk around. You remember that, right? Well, part of that prophecy ends like this. You can't make this up. Now remember what we just read happen. And hear this. And you shall know, this is verse 14 of Ezekiel 37, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So how are they going to know? He says, you're going to know that I am the Lord. And then he's going to tell them how. Listen. When I open your graves and I raise you from your graves, oh my people, and I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. There's coming a day when in your land, I'm just going to flat open up the graves and some of you are going to get up and walk around. And you're going to know when that happens, what? I'm the Lord. I, I think Matthew uh, is, is making a direct tie to this. Remember, Matthew's the first Gospel written and he's writing mostly to Jews. Folks, let me tell you, you tell a bunch of Jews that in Jerusalem... Graves open up and saints get up and walk around and all of them are immediately going to know, wait, that's Ezekiel 37. That's the promise. That's when God comes. Matthew's point, exactly. So I, I do. I think these were, were probably raised as supernatural bodies and they're probably saints. But I certainly know that on Sunday, a bunch of People who were dead got up and walked into the city. <laughs> Amazing. Let me tell you though, the question I wrestled with most this week, and this is gonna, you're going to laugh, you're going to say, out of all those things, this is what troubled you. It didn't trouble me, but it, it, I just kept asking, why did Matthew include the third miracle here? I mean, if you're writing an account, and Matthew's pretty detailed, Guys, he writes the longest of the of the uh, of the uh, disciples <clears throat> of the accounts. If you're writing an account and you're being this detailed, then why is it that when you are writing about something that happens on Sunday, that you tell about it when you tell about events that happen on Friday? That is. In Matthew 27, that's all about what happens on Friday, except for this one event. But Matthew 28 is about the resurrection. You would think that he would include this in chapter 28 right after he tells about the resurrection. He would tell about the resurrection and then he would say, and guess what else happened right after that? Those, these saints get up, they come out of their tombs, and they walk into the city. Now, 
on one sense, it's not that big of a deal because Matthew is known quite throughout the, uh, and we've seen this uh, as we've dealt with Matthew throughout. He'll quite often take things that aren't in the exact same order and put them together because he's got a theme. Yeah, but he would really have to have a major point he's trying to make to rip it out of the context when he's getting ready to tell us about the resurrection. He seems to really want to keep this together. That is, he seems to really want to keep the, the temple curtain ripping, the earth shaking, and the dead saints getting up raised from the dead and walking in the city. He seems to want to keep those together. I believe there's a striking reason for it. And I think there's stunning beauty here. Now I'm going to ask that you stay with me as we walk through it. But remember, as we go, the question we're after, and just stay with me, there's something at the end of the rainbow, I promise. What reason would Matthew find so compelling that he would put the miracle of the dead rising in chapter 27 with the events on Friday, with the torn temple and the earthquake, why would he do that? Why? What compelling reason? I think we can start with a hint from Christian interpretation. This is given to us plainly and authoritatively in Romans chapter 5. Now that is a very complex chapter and don't worry, some of you hear me say that and you think, are you really going to try to deal with all of that right now? No, I'm not. Big picture, here's what the whole chapter is about. The whole chapter is about all our hope is in Jesus. All of it. Everything we have hope in is in Christ. And then in verse 12, he turns to argue uh, that in Adam, all of our hope was dashed in Adam's sin. And yet in Christ, all of our hope is restored on the cross. That's, that's the big picture of what he's after. And in verse 18 and 19, here's how he summarizes. Stay with me. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all man, that's Adam in his, in his sin in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's what Christ did on the cross. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam in the apple, the tomato I've told you, Adam in the fruit, gets us all sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ on the cross, we're all made righteous. That's directly out of Romans chapter 5. So in Adam, we find our judgment and doom as we follow Him in our disobedience. While in Christ, we find hope and salvation as we are joined with Him in His obedience. Not ours on our own, but our faith in His. Someone much wiser than me has summarized it this way. I love this way of putting it. The submission and obedience Adam failed to demonstrate in the worst ways in the perfect conditions of the garden, Christ perfectly demonstrated in the worst conditions on the cross of Calvary. Okay, so what does this have to do with why Matthew decides to put it where he does? Because I think Matthew gets the point. I think Matthew gets that what Christ accomplished on the cross was about so much more than His own salvation. 
Think about it. You got a tree. You got the subject of separation between God and man. You got cosmic effects on the earth. And you have the curse of death. What does that make you think of? The garden. Genesis chapter 3. Now let me read to you parts of Genesis chapter 3. Stay with me. We're almost there. Just think about it. This is what God says to Adam. Verse 17. This is Genesis 3.17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. That's the earth because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. That's the curse of the earth. Remember in the beginning, the whole. what does God tell Adam to do with the earth? Subdue it and make it yours. Use it. Enjoy it. And then in the fall, and a couple chapters later, what is God saying to Adam? It's going to own you. You'll get some fruit out of it and you'll get some bread. But there will be thorns and there will be thistles and you will sweat a lot. There's a curse on the earth. Continuing to verse 19. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust. And to dust you shall return. That's the curse of what? Death. Not only are you not going to subdue over it, one day you're going to go down in it. One day it is going to subdue you. Adam, you're going to die. And every person after you is going to die. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. That's separation. Instead of the garden of Eden being the place that man and God would be together joined in unity and harmony, God says, out. And the separation begins. This is why I think Matthew wants to make sure all of these are put together. He is making a lot bigger point than Jesus simply died for just my sins. He's got a much bigger point to make. As Adam disobeyed on the tree, bringing separation between God and man, bringing curse upon the earth, and bringing death to all mankind, so gloriously different, Christ obeyed and submitted on the cross. And He's bringing peace between God and man. He's bringing a restored earth. And He is going to end death forever. It's as if 
the curtain tearing, in the earth shaking, in the saints rising are a divine trailer for us to see the promise of the coming kingdom. That is the Gospel. There is a kingdom coming and we by Christ will be part of it. And I think what Matthew wants us to see is that when Jesus says it is finished, He is igniting a flame that will begin to burn and will begin to start the effects of the kingdom. And, and I tell you, I, when I hear people summarize, well, what's the gospel? Well, it said Jesus died for my sins. <sighs> yes, yes, that's true. But it's kind of like asking somebody, what was the whole American Revolution about? And them saying, oh yeah, well, you know, we don't, I don't have to pay any more taxes to Britain now. Well, yeah, that's true. But what about the whole new nation part? <laughs> what about the whole independence and freedom part? What about the part that there's promise and there's hope? When Jesus died, it began hope for us like we've never had. There's a kingdom, and you and I are given access to it. And over and over this week, I thought about, oh my, do I look silly when all I can do is think and live with this life in view. He purchased a kingdom. And we each have acreage on it. Why in the world should we live like this place is all we've got? Brothers and sisters, this hope of a coming kingdom has burned in the hearts of believers for centuries. It's kept some of our fathers and our brothers and sisters in the faith alive while they sit in prisons for decades waiting to be executed for their faith. It has been the hope that has stirred young souls to say, get on boats and literally turn and leave their everything they know forever so that they can go tell the Gospel to people who've never heard it. Forever! And it's been the hope that's burned in a many preacher's heart for years. It allows them to get up week by week and say, this matters. This matters. Yes, the cross of Christ is about me being saved from my sin. But the cross of Christ is the tree that was buried that became the seed that is becoming the kingdom of God. That is why I think Matthew make sure that He puts together access to God, a new earth, and raised bodies. Because when it's all said and done, that's a great way to define the new kingdom. Well, real quickly, we'll quickly deal with the 
other verses here. I love it. So helpful. You hear this, you hear all this and you go, okay, well that's helpful, but what do we really do with that? I mean, how do you really, how does that touch my life? It's as if Matthew knew that question was coming. And yet in the middle of all this, he tells us great historical stuff. Watch these, we had three miracles. We were getting ready to be followed by three very, very odd duck disciples. When the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now make sure you catch the significance of this. This is one of the guys who helped execute Jesus. He just helped execute the man. Finishes that task. And he sees all this stuff happen. And it says here, it says he, he sees the earthquake and what took place. The other Gospels tell us that that part of what took place is he actually looks at Jesus and says, the way this guy died and the control he had and the compassion he had, I've never seen it. And he looks up and goes, this was the Son of God. He's moved, he's moved by the compassion and control of Jesus. He's moved by the earthquake. And he says, that's the Son of God. That's awesome. Think about it. That means that some of the ones, because it's not just centurions, those who are with them, some of the ones who actually put Jesus to death will be worshiping with you and I in heaven over the perfected Lamb of God. Is that an amazing sight? That's how eclectic heaven's going to be. It is going to be really eclectic. You're going to get there and you're going to be like, no way, you made it. Right? But don't worry, some people are going to get there and be like, no way, you made it. Right? That's the joy of the whole thing. Then keep reading. There are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and mother the son, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, or sons of thunder. Now, I, I found this really interesting. The word "women" is used um, twenty-three times across all four Gospels. Twenty-three, ten. So almost half of the occurrences show up at the Passion and Resurrection account. So I'm kind of going, what's up with this? What's well, interesting? Of those ten, only one comes from John. He barely mentions him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke go out of their way to mention him. But at the end of the day, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the accounts coming from the other disciples who aren't John because John gives his own account. Who's the only disciple who stood at the foot of the cross? John. Why is that significant? Where are the other guys? Folks, they scattered. Well, they had to in some ways. Zechariah says, they'll strike your sheep and the shepherd and the sheep will do what? They'll scatter. Long story short, all the rest of the disciples ran and hid. They can't tell us, Matthew can't tell us about what happened with the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the, and the, the crucifixion of Christ because Matthew wasn't there. He was hiding. This is Matthew's way, I believe, and the other disciples' way of saying, you know what? We all hid. But you know who didn't hide? 
They had a really lot to lose. They had no business being there. The women who had followed them. They were with them all along. Folks, it's not looking good for the Son of God if you're writing the story from a Jewish perspective in the first century. He's going to be executed. In fact, he actually dies. All of his friends are gone. And the only people with him right now are the people who executed him and some women. That's not a good thing for you. Let me tell you what. It's enough to get the story out if you're God. And guess who He uses? When you hear the accounts of the Passion, who should you thank for that? The women. Why does God do that? He does that because He's making a profound point. A point that's not made nearly as strong in our day where equality with women, thank God, is much different. But in the first century, it was a profound point. He is saying, I will take whoever I want and I'll use them as my disciples. And if that point's not struck home, keep reading. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He's a rich man and he's described by Matthew as what? He's a follower. He's a follower of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Let me tell you, this story beats all. So in Isaiah 53.9, we read this last week, there is this prophecy. It is one of the oddest prophecies in the entire uh, uh, messianic prophecy list. 53.9 clearly states, and they made his grave with the wicked, they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Now you talk about a riddle. If you had to try to pull that off, forget any other circumstances, that's not easy to pull off. You've got to somehow make the man's burial place with the wicked, but yet you have to make sure that he gets buried with the rich. How are you going to do that? Well, when they pulled Jesus off the cross, where is He going? If you get executed, you don't get buried. You get thrown in a heap with the rest of the bodies so you can rot outside the city so that people can look on the way in and go, don't mess with the Romans. That's, that's, where, that's where you're going. So it is said that when Jesus came off the cross, they had already made Him a grave, and it was going to be with the body with the rest of the executed. Or we might say they made Him a grave with who? The wicked. <laughs> Families can't claim the body. Who would want to claim the body of someone who was crucified. This is unbelievable. God, without using a calorie of energy, sends a Christ follower from the Sanhedrin to do it. Now remember, the Sanhedrin was the very group who plotted the execution of Jesus. Jesus. 
I love this. In the midst of all that's going on, God ordains a follower to secure a tomb for Jesus. But how's He going to do it? How's this guy who's part of saying he's going to do it? I'll tell you how he's going to do it. He's going to walk into Pilate's house himself and ask for the body. How in the world do you have access to Pilate to walk in his house? If you're rich. So he walks up in there and he asks, I'd like to take his body and I'd like to bury it. Now you're talking about confusion for Pilate. Let me get this straight. You're the Sanhedrin. That's right. Didn't your people orchestrate the execution of the guy? That's right. I'd like to give him my tomb. Now you realize if you put a dead criminal in your tomb, I mean, that's a nice plot. Nobody's ever allowed to be buried there again. Mm-hmm. I'd like his body. You can have it. Just like that, without even blinking, God takes care of that prophecy. And then we see Joseph of Arimathea playing right into the picture. And then again, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who were there sitting opposite the tomb. What do all of these three have in common? They are all odd duck disciples. I'm sorry. He makes a disciple out of those who execute him. He makes a disciple out of a group of women. And he makes a a disciple out of those who plotted his execution. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God can use poor, broken, even rich to accomplish His purpose. And yet, there's this question. Well, what about the other disciples? I mean, how shameful. They weren't even there. How could they not show up in the hour of need of Jesus? I guess they're written off, right? Oh, no. That's the compassion of God. And that's also the grace He shows in discipleship. Those men, all of them saved Judas. Those other men who weren't there, those ten, every single one of those men will have the opportunity and they will take it to give their lives, literally spill their blood for Jesus as they are in charge of starting the church and they're in charge of spreading the Gospel to all the nations. I say that because I don't know where you are in your journey of being a disciple of Jesus. I hope you've heard enough about the great kingdom that you go, I don't just want a ticket to heaven. I don't just want some fire insurance. Man, I want to be a part of the greatest kingdom that will ever be. The greatest king there ever is. And if there is any part of you that says, yeah, but you you got no clue about me, Tim. You got no idea about my background. You got no idea about where I've been and what I've done. Maybe I don't. I do know that he used the very one that put the nails in his hands to make a disciple out of him. 
I know that He used the very one who sat down and was part of the group, who sat down and plotted His execution to make a disciple of Him. And I know that He used the ones who were considered, considered the weakest of that day to make a disciple of Him. But I can tell you this, without doubt, you make a choice. Do you want to follow? Or do you not? If you want to follow, He will use you. But His kingdom is coming and nobody can stop it. And we'll close with these last verses because they are a mockery of human strength. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, you know, we remember how this imposter said, while I was still alive, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, just in case any of his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. In other words, you know what we'd appreciate is if you'd go secure that tomb. We heard that, you know, you let him get buried. But if you could secure it in case somebody goes and tries to steal it. Now, what they don't know is God is using them perfectly. What does God need? God would love to have, would love to use a bunch of people guarding the tomb in the most official way that humans could give authority in that day and age, guarding it. So that it can be said, on the authority of Rome, that tomb was sealed. He would love that. So that when Jesus rises up, there's no question He was dead and He was buried and He overcame the grave. He used them like pawns. I love this. I love the mockery in these verses. Listen to this. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day unless His disciples go and steal away and tell His people He has risen from the dead. And you know, the last fraud will be worse than the first. You know, if it ever got out, that He was raised, I can't imagine what would happen. (laughs) You have no idea what's already happening. And then I love 65 and 66. Pilate said to them, Do you have a guard of soldiers? Yeah, that'll do it. Go and make it, I love these words, as secure as what? As you can. The words there are as secure as humanly possible. Yeah, you do that. Make it as secure as humanly possible. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and by setting a guard. And you can just hear dot, dot, dot. Sunday's coming. God has a kingdom that is marching on. And the drumbeat started when Jesus said it's finished. Brothers and sisters, it's happening. I pray that God would give us vision and strength and faith to believe and to see it. And do the only thing that makes sense. Be a disciple. Follow. And pray. Oh, what beautiful verses, God. What an amazing passage. You never take one word and make waste of it. 
Lord, I pray this morning that You will use it in the lives of Your people. I thank You for the hope it's given me. Just the energy and faith it's given me in the last couple of days to be reminded I'm part of a big kingdom. And this King is amazingly strong. And He knows what He's doing. And He's coming again. I pray that You would use it in the life of Your people in the way that You see fit. Amen.